0: Well, today we're going to continue our study of 2 Samuel, and so we'll be in chapters 15 and 16 today. A little context of where we've come in our study of First and Second Samuel. We're seeing this really as the unfolding story of David, the king that God appoints for his people. Uh, the way that he's referred to in Scripture in a couple of places is a man after God's own heart. And yet, as we've gotten into 2 Samuel and we've seen the transition from Saul's kingdom to David's kingdom now, we've seen that David is also a flawed, sinful human. In chapter 13, we read of his sin, sorry, chapter 11, we read of his sin with his neighbor's wife, Bathsheba, and then covering up that sin with another sin, murdering her husband, Uriah, the confrontation of the prophet Nathan coming to David. But David's repentant heart, acknowledging his sin, crying out to God, receiving the words of judgment that God spoke on him and yet remaining firm in his faith. In contrast, now we're moving into a story of conflict between David and his children. First, we, last week we heard the sad story of David's son Amnon violating his half-sister Tamar and then her brother Absalom retaliating by murdering Amnon. And so some of the judgment that God had spoken to David through Nathan is now being fulfilled in his own family. And that story is escalating as we continue now, really a story of conflict between Absalom and David, so David and his son Absalom. And so that's where we pick up the story here now in in chapter 15. We're gonna see a contrast, really what I see in the motives and the actions of both Absalom and David is a contrast of, of how do we respond to power what does trust look like? What, when, do we, when do we be active and when do we take a passive role? And I think we're going to see Absalom as really the, the picture of misusing power, using power to one's own advantage, trying to make things happen, really de- demonstrating by his actions and his beliefs that really there is no God. If you want something to happen, you've got to make it happen for yourself. You've got to work the crowd. You've got to work an angle. Now David, he also struggles with these, these issues of trust and power. There's times when he's too assertive and he's working an angle like he did with his neighbor's wife. He saw something he wanted and he took action and it was a sinful action that was for his own self-gratification. But then there's other times when David is overly passive as we saw in the story of Amnon and Tamar where things happened that he should have dealt with as the king within the sphere of influence that God had entrusted to him and yet in those times he took a passive role. So where is that balance between trusting in God's strength, being passive in terms of not making things happen ourselves and yet being active when God calls us to act for his glory and for his kingdom? And so we read here in chapter 15 the the context. Now, Absalom had been on the run after murdering his brother Amnon. David has allowed him to return to Jerusalem, but kept him away from his presence for a period of two years until Absalom takes the initiative and comes before David. And there's a kiss there at the end of chapter 14 as they are reunited. But immediately thereafter, we get to chapter 15. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Why would he do that? What are Absalom's motives? What is he thinking? The answer to that question is by looking at these actions and scrutinizing them. Well, if, if you are getting a chariot and some horses, that's a show of power. If you've got 50 guys running before you, that's... That's a king-like picture there. There's, there's some outer appearances that Absalom is putting together. Maybe not unlike the phrase that we have today, it's not what you know, but who you know. And there's some external pretense, some wanting to be seen in the right context with the right people around you, driving the right car, being among the movers and shakers. That's the kind of attitude we're seeing with Absalom here. So he got himself a chariot, some horses, 50 men to run before him, and Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right. But there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So there's the chariot, there's the horses, there's the 50 men, and all of that is in the context of what we have seen repeatedly as I've brought us back to Deuteronomy 17, that charter of kingship that God lays out way back in the time of Moses for his people And there in Deuteronomy 17, there's a warning about this very kind of behavior. God says to his people, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. And then he lays out some stipulations. Four requirements, though, of that king. Number one, he's got to be a brother, not a foreigner. Number two, he shouldn't be a king that amasses horses and trusts in chariots, especially the kind of king who tries to take you back to Egypt to get some of those Egyptian horses. Don't ever put your trust in that military power that horses represent. And don't get a king who takes many wives or accumulates lots of silver and gold. But instead, the kind of king I want for you, my people, the Lord says, is the kind of king who writes a copy of this book of the law and carries it with him and lives by it and teaches it to the people and reminds them who the real king is. And so by Absalom's actions, we're getting a glimpse into his heart and where his source of strength and hope lies. The chariots, the horses, the fighting men. Then, he, then he, we move into the next description of his actions here as we're looking into what is he thinking, what's the motive behind his actions. He looks like a politician here in an, in an election cycle, doesn't he? He's going to every constituent, every special interest and say, yep, I'm gonna, your special interest will be happy when I'm in charge. You know, I'm just picturing the scene as you've got many people coming through the gates of the city. Probably a couple neighbors who maybe are in dispute with one another. And, you know, neighbor A comes through and he says, yep, I'm, I'm on your side. I'll make it happen. Then, you know, farmer B comes in and he's talking about neighbor A. Yeah, I'm with you too. Yep, I'm on your side. If I was in charge, you'd get your way. We'd resolve this. Empty promises. Justice for everyone. But again, it's it's kingly behavior, it's a posture that he's putting out there, that Absalom is, is putting out there as he's stealing the hearts of the, of the men and women of Israel. He also wants to portray himself as being approachable. He's he's one that works the crowd, he's pumping every hand, he's kissing the babies. No, 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 don't bow down to me and give me reverence just because I'm the king's son. No, stand up here. In fact, let me give you an embrace. Let me give you a kiss. We're equals. I'm one of you. Like the politician rolling up his or her sleeves and holding a shovel. First time in their life they've done that, right? I'm sorry, I'm picking on politicians today. So he's working the crowd. You know, it is true that humility is such an attractive trait that people imitate it. And that's what Absalom is doing here. He's, he's presenting himself as someone with humility. And through all of this behavior, his real goal is to steal the hearts of the people. There's times that we are tempted to behave like Absalom did, to make things happen on our own to be seen in a a certain way, to portray ourselves in a certain way, to work an angle, to tell people what they want to hear, maybe even to come off as being humble and down to earth. And we'll see as the story unfolds that for Absalom, these behaviors were part of a conspiracy. There's a subversive element to these actions. It's not benign, neutral, just wanting to be perceived as a nice guy, He's trying to seize power. He has as his goal to dethrone his own father and to take power for himself. Well, what's David thinking in all this? Because this is happening under his nose. Absalom is not just living in Jerusalem, but he's been reunited with his dad. And this is taking place at the gate of the city where David lives. If If his son has a chariot and some horses and 50 men running out before him and if he's getting up early every morning to meet the people at the gate of the city offering justice, giving kisses of embrace, this news has gotten to David and yet David once again is passive. He's inactive. For how long? The next verse at the end of four years. This whole conspiracy has been building and mounting and David has done nothing. While Absalom is stealing the hearts of the men of Israel, David is not addressing this growing problem. It's a a pattern that that has been happening through several chapters here in 2 Samuel. Ever since those actions back in chapter 11 when David did... Take action, and he saw his neighbor's wife and he sent for her and he brought him to himself and he took her and then he tried to cover up his sin by calling her husband back from the battlefield and then sending Uriah with his own death notice to the commander of the army where he would perish on the front lines at the hands of the enemy force. But since he was confronted with his sin, he's been... Hesitant and unwilling to act. He didn't intervene to protect his daughter Tamar from his son Amnon. He didn't ensure justice after that crime or provide care for the victim. He allowed two years to pass with no action. He didn't bring Absalom back to Jerusalem to stand trial for the murder of his brother Amnon. He allowed three years to pass with no action in that case. And then after Joab and the woman of Tekoa convince him to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem, he allows two more years of estrangement with his son until Absalom takes the lead and says, I want to go see my dad. Two years have passed. And they're reconciled there at the end of chapter 14. And now as Absalom's conspiracy grows stronger, David sits on his hands for another four years. Really, both of the actions that we've seen thus far in the chapter, both the actions of Absalom and the actions of David, demonstrate a lack of trust in God. For Absalom, it's acting in his own self-interest. It says, you know, God's not going to make things happen, so I have to. God's unable to act or he's unwilling to act, and I've got some plans, I'm going to make it happen. That's a lack of trust in God's sovereignty that we're seeing in Absalom. And and we're tempted to do that, right? You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna have some conversations. I'm gonna spread some news that needs to be told. I'm gonna get out there on social media. I'm gonna drive the right kind of car. And we're encouraged to do that in our culture, really the culture of LinkedIn profiles, resumes, or oh, you know, you just got to sell yourself. And so like Absalom, we're tempted to maybe even take things that are neutral, but use them in a way that is building up our kingdom, building up our name. On the other hand, we've got David who his not acting within the sphere of influence that God has entrusted to him is also a lack of trust in God. And maybe it's a concern for his reputation, maybe it's a fear of past mistakes, a wondering what people will think, what will they say about me. But not acting can also be a way of not trusting in God. And so at the end of four years, Absalom now comes and and really this is where the plot begins to thicken and and unfold and be made clear to David and to everyone else. So Absalom says, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. If you remember, that is the city in the southern part of the kingdom where David was first installed as king during the divided kingdom with Saul's descendant Ishbosheth. And so, you know, the, the radar should come on for, for David. You know, the antenna should be raised, and he should be going, mm, warning, caution. Why do you need to go to Hebron to offer a sacrifice? You live here in Jerusalem. You could go to the temple here. Why Hebron? And Absalom goes on For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Gesher in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. Good explanation, convincing. And so the king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom, now you know, one thing I'll just point out in the Hebrew, we missed it in the English here, the phrase that David says to his son Absalom, anyone know the Hebrew word for peace? Shalom. Anyone notice the end of Absalom's name? Shalom as well. And so it's not coincidental that David is is speaking this message to his son. Go in peace, my son whose name means peace. But that's not what happens in verse 10. Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. And listen to how, how he lays this out. So he's got a few secret messengers scattered among the tribes, a small band that are on his side, but he's going to bloat that by the appearance of force. Here in verse 11, with Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they were in their innocence and knew nothing. Oh, there's a party in Hebron with Absalom, the king's son? Yeah, you going? You go? Sure, let's go and they're heading down they're they're unaware of what's about to take place and yet for Absalom it's a way of demonstrating hey when the trumpets sound and people start yelling he's the king there's also 200 guys from Jerusalem here with me and it's going to look like they're a part of this coronation committee and while Absalom was offering the sacrifices he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite David's counselor from his city Gillow and the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing so this is allowed to happen under David's nose you've got Absalom very active working for his own self-interest all kinds of interwoven schemes and plots appearances and then you've got David passive inactive not not taking action to clarify what's happening or to give leadership within his sphere of influence that God has entrusted to him for a period of four years and now things are really getting out of hand. Well, as this comes to a head, how will David respond? And we're going to see now that finally David moves from passivity to an active role as we, as we, can, as we get to, through the rest of chapter 15 so a messenger came to David saying the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem arise and let us flee or else there there will be no escape for us from Absalom go quickly lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword and the king's servants said to the king behold your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides so the king went out, and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. So David recognizing the danger, knowing that what this really means is his own imminent death. Right? So a son doesn't take over the throne while his dad is still alive. There's regicide in the works. And so David says it's time to leave. But a couple things, you know, number one, he leaves 10 of his harem there at the palace. I think at this point in the story, that indicates that David is hoping to return to the palace. You know, that he's not giving up and taking his entire family out, but that there's thoughts that either things will be worked out with Absalom, there'll be the ability to reconcile and to to quelch this conspiracy before it really heats up? Or or I'm not sure what he thinks about Absalom's future, but it seems that there's some hope that his kingdom will continue on in that he leaves these 10 concubines there at the palace, but we'll see that that takes a dark twist in the next chapter. And they halt at the last house, so they're on the very outskirts of the city, the last house before you're out of town. He's got a small band of faithful, loyal companions that are with him. And so now, where is he going to go? He's going to go to a place that's very familiar to him. A place where David's leadership first began. A place where when he took action, it was as one commissioned by God and empowered by God. And he's going back to that familiar place where he was first called. And so all of David's servants passed by him, all the Cherethites, the Pelethites, 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath. They all passed on before the king. And then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday. And shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. That's a place that David was familiar with. And once again, just like he did at the beginning of his reign, or actually his, after he'd been anointed by God to be the future king and Saul was still in charge, David's now got a band of rejects, malcontents, some foreigners who just showed up yesterday and and their entire family. And they're heading out of the city of Jerusalem and out to the wilderness. And that's been a place where David has trusted God in the past to provide for him, to protect him from the spirit, to guide his steps. And it's like God is bringing him back to that place where he's willing to take an active role as he sees God directing and leading, regaining some confidence in his ability to hear from God and to discern and to really entrust himself to God. The wilderness is that place that God leads you when you need a reminder that the fight is not yours. And we resist the wilderness, right? Those are the times that we run from, try to get out of, try to spend as little time there as possible, complain about. And it's totally natural to pray to God during those times of wilderness and say, God, get me out of here. Bring me to the green pastures, to the still waters. The wilderness is dangerous, it's scary, and yet it's a place that God brings us when we need a reminder to trust in Him. And if at the end of that wilderness Time we trust in him more, it was worth it. If the wilderness causes us to doubt him or to turn our back from him or to reject him, we've missed the point of that wilderness journey. Sometimes the wilderness feels like it will never end. How long, O Lord? David cries out in the Psalms. And he does have those fist-shaking psalms at, time, at times. The ones that we rarely sing about as we sing songs of victory and triumph and joy and hope. And yet there are psalms of lament. The deprecatory psalms. How long, O oh Lord? And there's no neat bow at the end of it. Yet I will trust in the Lord. They end in anger and sadness. That's what it's like in the wilderness. And yet, that's a place that God, in His sovereignty, brings us at times so that we will trust in Him more. Usually, power and trust are opposed to one another. You either have power or you have trust because you need it. And when you have power, you tend to trust in your power, just as Absalom is doing here in the story. Absalom, he grasped for power. He seized power. He made things happen. David, he's holding power loosely. You know, he's still got the army there in Jerusalem. His son's got, you know, a a handful of loyal supporters down in Hebron, 200 confused guys that aren't quite sure why they're there. And then whatever is happening down in Hebron, it's still early in this time of insurrection. David could have clung to power And so we're going to go down to Hebron and destroy my son and put an end to this rebellion. And yet just as he did when Saul continued as king for years and he had opportunities to cut a piece of his robe off in a cave, to use his own spear while he was sleeping, take matters into his own hands, and yet David held that power with an open hand and said, God, in your timing, in your way, with your plans, When you want to use me, I'm available to you, but I won't make things happen myself. And now, as his own son is coming to take that kingdom, David once again shows that same heart and says, Let's just go. If God wants to hand my kingdom over to my son, it's his kingdom, really, not mine. And so he has a a small band of loyal friends that are following him out into the wilderness. And he's continuing to trust in that all-powerful right hand of God. David is trusting in God to make things happen. Here's his own words from Psalm 20, a psalm of David. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. David's living that. And the blessing is that with that commitment, God does send some supporters to encourage him that he's not alone in the wilderness. Verse 24: Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok also came with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him the king also said to Zadok the priest, are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimahaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. You hear that heart of David in those words? Either God will bring me back Or not, let him do to me what seems good to him. You remember back, anybody remember the WWJD movement back in the the 90s? You know, everybody's wearing these bracelets and t shirts. That was what would Jesus do? So then somebody thought that was such a great idea. I'm going to come up with another acronym so I can sell some bracelets too. Frog, anybody remember that one? This is a little bit more obscure. Youth Ministry, 90s. Larry, maybe? I don't know. F-R-O-G, fully rely on God. I bet you David had one of those on both wrists. He's got the t-shirt on, he's got the baseball cap. And that's really his posture is he's just saying, you know, if God wants me to get a chance to go back to Jerusalem to see the ark, to worship at the temple, so be it. If If this is God's way of saying, David, I am done with you. I'm handing the kingdom over to your son. I trust him. It's not, it's not what's best for me, it's not my personal self-interest, it's not my goal. I am entrusting myself to him, to the God that sees the future, that knows all the details that I don't, the God that's got ten things going at once, when I just have one thing on my mind and heart. And if part of his plan is dethroning me, I trust him. That's what it looks like to be a man after God's own heart. Now David goes from there, from that conversation with Zadok as he sends the ark back into Jerusalem. Part of that, I think, is a a, a remembrance of what happened in chapter 6 when Uzzah, as the ark was going into Jerusalem, reached out his hand to steady the ark and he was struck down by the Lord. And David was hesitant to bring the ark into Jerusalem. There's a holy reverence for the presence of God. And David says, leave the ark here God is sending us out into the wilderness, and we're going to trust him and follow him without this symbol of his power and his strength and his presence with us. We're going to trust that he will guide our steps. And then David goes from there up to the Mount of Olives. He's weeping as he goes, barefoot, his head is covered. All the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, Oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. The Mount of Olives is a pretty significant location uh, in the New Testament. Jesus spent some time in the Mount of Olives, the very end of the Gospels, it's right there in Jerusalem. After the Last Supper in Matthew 26, that's where Jesus went with his disciples. It's where he was betrayed by Judas. It's where that Gethsemane prayer happened. Gethsemane means olive press. So it's right there in the vicinity of the Mount of Olives. That's the place where Jesus prayed and he cried and he wept and he sweat drops of blood. He was in such anguish. And he cried out to God right before he was to be crucified, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. In other words, if there's another way for your wrath to be poured out besides my life being taken and bearing the sins of the many, then Lord let that be, but, if not, but not my will, but yours be done, was Jesus' prayer at Gethsemane. David is now on that same location and he's praying a Mount of Olives prayer, a Gethsemane prayer. His prayer is, oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And really this opens kind of another section of this story of, con- of conflict between Absalom and David. It's now these two prophets of God, one versus the other, the counsel of Ahithophel versus the counsel of Hushai, who David sends on his behalf. And so David's praying, God, please don't let Absalom listen to what Ahithophel says. Advises and, counsels. and now David takes an active role again as he's moving into the wilderness, demonstrating and declaring trust in God. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat turn, torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king. As I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the council of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimahaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Coming up from Hebron, heading into Jerusalem just as David has left the last house on the outskirts of the city. is heading into the wilderness. Timing is perfect. David's got a few loyal men still there in Jerusalem. He's, he's in the wilderness. David's in the wilderness. He's taking charge. He's giving orders. He's leading. We haven't seen this for years. Within his own household, he allowed things to continue. He didn't take an active role. But finally now, as God is leading him to a wilderness experience once again, he's gaining some confidence and he's trusting in God. He's saying, God, if, if anything's going to happen, it's going to have to be by your hand. So when David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him. Now we're going to see two stories of some of the conflict that David experiences as he's heading into the wilderness. This first guy, Ziba, we've met previously. If you remember, Mephibosheth was Saul's grandson, the last surviving member of Saul's family. He's crippled in both legs. Ziba was the servant of Jonathan who's charged with taking care of Mephibosheth. So Ziba's about to cook up a story about Mephibosheth and his disloyalty now to add insult to injury as if it's not bad enough that your own son is trying to kill you so he could take over the throne. There's two more characters along the way to offer some more discouragement to David. So Ziba comes. He's got a couple of donkeys saddled. He's bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. Donkey, a donkey is the animal that a king rides on. Okay, we, we may not pick that up, but that's, that's a kingly animal. That's what you ride in on if you're the king. What did Jesus ride in on on the, on the day of Passover? He came in on a, on a donkey. Okay, that's a kingly picture there. So the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. It's a a display of loyalty. The bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. The king said, Where's your master's son? Where's Mephibosheth? Your master, Jonathan's son. Ziba said to the king, Behold, he he remains in Jerusalem where, by the way, Absalom, your son, the usurper, has just arrived. For he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. So Ziba is is cooking up a story and saying that Mephibosheth sees this as an opportunity to reestablish the throne of Saul. The king said to Ziba, behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. And we've kind of looked at that story already. As we A few weeks ago, we, had a, we studied the life of Mephibosheth, looked at that passage, and later, as the truth comes out, and Mephibosheth reaffirms his loyalty to David, says, no, Ziba was, was making up some, some lies there for his own. He was working an angle. He was taking action, just like Absalom has done. Ziba saw an opportunity to improve his own position. But again, it's, it's adding insult to injury for David as he now hears this other discouraging story. Well, now they go a little further down the path and they find a man who's, who's spewing and throwing words and dirt, literally, at David. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. Now David's got some military guys with him. And there's one crazy dude throwing rocks and insulting the current king of Israel. Things are a little up in the air, but this seems pretty gutsy and ignorant to me. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out! Get out! You man of blood! You worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you for you are a man of blood. Seems that Shimei is going even... Further back, you know, he's not just confronting the actual blood on David's hands from the death of Uriah. That was the message that the Lord sent through Nathan. David wanted to be able to kind of remove himself from that. Oh oh no, the enemy army killed Uriah on the battlefield. What an unfortunate event. But as God confronted him, he said, you killed him using the hand of that enemy army. But it seems that Shimei is going even further back David's reign. He's referring to the death of Saul and Jonathan. And he's holding David culpable for that. Maybe the fact that David had an allegiance with the king of Gath, one of the Philistine cities, with Achish and his men. and, and, And Shimei is now seeing that David is connected with the end of Saul's reign, accusing him of having blood on his hands for that. So now this this man is is throwing rocks and throwing words at David. David is surrounded by his army of, of loyal wilderness wanderers. And Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? So David is taking these words of insult and these rocks thrown at him and holding it with an open hand and saying, You know, maybe God told him to curse me. I'm just going to roll with it. God's got my reputation in his hands. The bruises will heal. Maybe this is part of God's will for me in the the wilderness. David's a bigger man than I am. How about you? How do you take personal insults, attacks on your reputation, people throwing stuff at you? Do you you have that attitude of, you know, maybe God sent them to throw rocks at me and to curse at me. I'm good with that. That's a a tough place to be. And yet it, it shows a level of trust that David has through the circumstances in his life, saying, God will avenge me if that's in his will. And so then, verse 11 David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone? And let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. And there he refreshed himself. How my son is trying to kill me! How much worse can this be? This guy's insulting me. He's throwing rocks at me. It it really is not that big of a deal in light of my own son trying to kill me. And you know, maybe God will even turn this cursing into a blessing. He, He sees my suffering. He's aware of what I'm going through. He knows my pain. If he ordained the pain, I need to receive it and be disciplined by the Lord. If not, he'll vindicate me. He'll comfort me. He'll bring words of blessing in my future. Either way, I trust in him. It's a very different posture than what we've seen in Absalom. So there's times to be passive, and there's times to say, you know what, I'm not going to fight back, I'm not going to defend my name. I'm not going to retaliate. I'm going to let God and his right hand be my source of strength. Some trust in chariots, some in horses. I'm going to trust in the name of the Lord my God. He's my defender. He's my provider. He's the one that speaks truth to me when others speak lies. He holds my reputation and I I put my trust and confidence in him. And so let's conclude chapter 16 as now the, the, the plots start to merge together as Absalom has entered Jerusalem, the prophet that David has sent back into the city, Hushai has now arrived, right as the remaining counselor, Ahithophel, is there beginning to give advice. And it's, it's beginning that, the conflicting advice of these two counselors we won't get fully into that story, but let's, let's read the end of chapter 16 here today. So Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, second time we've heard that phrase of him, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, now I want you to really pay careful attention to, to Hushai's careful Choice of words in the next few sentences. Um, give you a little clue on what you're going to see here. Have you ever heard someone tell you a preposterous story? An adult? And if it's a kid, you just kind of play along. but an adult tells you something you know is it just doesn't ring true. But you don't really feel like directly confronting that, so you say something like, "That's unbelievable." And you kind of wink at your spouse, you know. So you both know what you meant by that, but the person who's all excited thinks that you're just, you know, enthusiastically supporting their fabrication. We get some of that going on here with Hushai. There's some sentences that he says that you could take either way. So the first thing he says: long live the king. Long live the king. Absalom picks up on that one. And he said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Remember, he was introduced twice as the friend of David. Why did you not go with your friend, my dad? And and now he he continues to speak in the same way, but, but Absalom apparently goes along with it. Hushai said to Absalom, No, for... "'whom the Lord and this people "'and all the men of Israel have chosen, "'his I will be, "'and with him I will remain.'" Now, Absalom, in his arrogance, is starting to think that this applies to him. I think, I think Hushai is still speaking in this veiled way where he's saying, "'Yeah, you know where my loyalty is, bub.'" And again... Whom should I serve? Now he finally recites the line that David fed him at the very end here of this dialogue. Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. So he delivers the line that's going to allow him to remain there in Jerusalem to give counsel in contrast to what Ahithophel is advising Absalom. And so Absalom doesn't say off with his head, so now we've got Hushai standing there, and then Absalom turns to the other counselor, Ahithophel. "'Give your counsel. What shall we do?' Ahithophel said to Absalom, "'Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened.' Good advice or bad advice? Well, if the goal is insurrection, it's pretty good advice. Because there's going to be those who are wavering, those who are holding out hope that there can be a peaceful restoration of the relationship between Absalom and David. And this act will destroy any hope of there ever being a reunited family for David with his son Absalom. This will be a very public vulgar act that's going to really make people know that this is a this is the new king he has now taken over the king's harem at the palace and so that's what happens they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof the very location where David had gazed down on his neighbor's wife and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel This is in fulfillment of part of the pronouncement that Nathan spoke to David, the pronouncement of judgment from the Lord. Back in chapter 12, here's what it says in verse 11, Behold, God says to David, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. It's really that prophecy being fulfilled now. And the last verse here of chapter 16, In those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. I I see a real warning in that last verse. Verse. And I think it's a warning that the Church of America needs to hear today. There's a lot of people that are, that are consulting. They're esteeming the counsel of smooth talkers instead of actually consulting the word of the Lord. And that's a real danger and a real risk for the church. So the, 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 the word was, man, this Ahithophel, man, is his, is his advice awesome? It's as if he's, he's speaking with the word of the Lord. Let's go see what Ahithophel thinks. Well, you know, you do have the word of the Lord. You could actually consult the word of the Lord. You've got prophets that God has sent, like Nathan and Samuel, to declare his word to you in this Old Testament era. Or you could listen to this advisor who is it's as if he speaks with the word of the Lord. And there's a danger and a caution here. Because the advice that Ahithophel gives to Absalom is it's conducive toward achieving the end that Absalom had desired. So it's good advice in that way. Like, how can I do something that I want? Whether or not God wants it, I I don't really care. But I want the throne. I want my father dethroned. What's the best way to make that happen Ahithophel. What Absalom needed to hear was, you're wrong. You're going down the wrong course, buddy. You're seizing power for yourself that God has not given to you. And you need to repent and be reconciled. And instead, he gets the advice that he's seeking. I want to know how to get what I want. And Ahithophel gives him good advice down that path. So there's a caution to us here To be be the people who actually consult the word of the Lord. Not just esteeming the counsel of smooth talkers, including a pastor on a Sunday morning, right? Open this book for yourself and read it. Make a copy of it. Carry it with you. Live by it. Demonstrate to your family what it is to live by every law, command, and decree that the Lord our God has given to us. Put your faith and confidence in him and trust in him to be the one that fights your battles even when he leads you into wilderness times where your faith is tested and there's rocks and words thrown at you and your reputation is only in his hands and all you see is opposition around you. Kind of a sad place to end today, but this is, this is a five-chapter-long story. And I think two chapters is is good for today. And maybe it's good for us to rest in that place because David spent some time in the wilderness. And maybe some of us can identify with that today. I'm going to ask if we would all stand together in prayer. Some of us today, as as you're standing, this is putting yourself in God's hands and saying, God, I'm in that place right now where I need to hold an open hand to you and say, it's by your right hand that I find my strength and trust. And others today, maybe just to stand in prayer for those who are in this room who are going through that wilderness time right now to pray that God will sustain them. And God's going to use you like one of the faithful friends in that time, of, that low time in someone's life to come and say, hey, you know what? I'm a loyal friend. I'm with you. You're not alone. God has not abandoned you. Do you want me to cut off that guy's head? No, put the sword away. <coughs> We need friends like that as well to, that, that have our back in those difficult times. So I think God's calling each of us in one of those ways today. right? So let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are able and more than able to work in our situations. God, thank you that it's not about our name and our glory, but it's about your name and your glory. And God, our reputation is insignificant in comparison to your reputation. Today what we are all about is glorifying you, bringing praise to you. God, we, we don't want to be like those who consult uh, people with whose opinions are impressive and smooth-talking and it's as if they've consulted your word. But Lord, we want to be those who go to your word, who encourage one another to go to your word, who go to your word together, who, Lord, hold our spheres of influence and responsibility and leadership with an open hand, entrusting our futures to you, all of our hopes, all of our aspirations, even our reputations. And when the insults come and the attacks and the words fly, God, we don't need to retaliate even though we're tempted to do so. Help us, Lord, to have that heart that David shows in this story where he trusts in you to vindicate to speak words of blessing, to counteract those words of curse that we've heard, to bring healing, to sustain us in those times of wilderness. God, forgive us for when we've tried to make things happen. We've tried to grasp power, to seize power, to work an angle, and we've been devious and conspiratorial like Absalom. Today we reject that way of living, And we come to you as those who are desperately in need of you. Lord, we don't want to be passive when you've called us to act. So Lord, when there are sin issues, when there are times that we need to risk our own reputations in order to speak for you, pray that you give us the courage to obey and to follow and the wisdom to know the difference. We entrust ourselves to you now today. In Jesus' name, amen.